Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Uh, so uh, we, we're just coming off the back of a, a short series uh, going through looking at uh, gender, the gospel, sexuality, things like that. And moving forward, we're going to be looking at, we're going to spend five weeks on suffering. But today we want to pause and look at one particular uh, um, uh, sort of watermark that's across everything that we do, which is uh, mission. We, we want to be a church that is on about what God is on about. We have a desire here at Anchor Southwest to multiply disciples and gospel communities and churches that bear witness to the rule and the reign of God. And so we want to pause for just a moment uh, to think about what it means. Um, and I understand that you may be here and you may not be a Christian. You may not call yourself a Christian. You're welcomed here. Uh, uh, but as a Christian, if you're sitting here, I, I want us to rethink what it means to be a Christian today. So often we think about it as receiving salvation, which is true. It absolutely is true that, that we're saved from Satan, sin, and death as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're, we're not just receivers of salvation, we're brokers of salvation. We're not to be a, a, a cul-de-sacs of God's gracious rule and reign, we're supposed to be conduits of it. What does it mean to be that? And so as we pause today to explore, meditate on God's desire to go to the ends of the earth. I want us to learn something that is deceivingly simple and yet deeply profound. And it's this, that the mission of God is absolutely unstoppable and surprisingly unhurried. It's absolutely unstoppable. So we'll be uh, sort of talking about that, but it is surprisingly unhurried. Before I do that, help me to pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that, in fact, um, uh, you are good, and the truest thing in the universe is that you are good. Lord, despite what we may be feeling now, and we want to bring all of our feet, we don't deny feelings, uh, we, don't, we don't bury them here, uh, but despite what we may be feeling, the, the pain in our bodies or in our minds, we, we proclaim the truth that you are good. And so, Lord, help us through your word see and feel your goodness today your grace. Draw near those, Lord, who, are, uh, who, you've, who you're calling to yourself. I, I pray that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, Amen. and the church said, Amen. we live in a wild world, don't we not? Like it's, it, it is wild. In the, in the span of the last 30 or so years that we have lived in the West, we have experienced some seismic shifts in our culture. And it's not to say that there aren't other uh, places and times that have also experienced incredible shifts, but what makes our time particularly unique is that we know we're going through it. And, we're, and we know we're going through it on a global scale. And the rate of change that we all experience is astronomical. We've never experienced the rate of change as a human race. Most of us, maybe at least some of us, remember what a pre-internet world felt like, right? I'm looking around, some of you are like, yes, some of you are like, what? Was there a time where you didn't have the internet? There, there was a time where we didn't have the internet. Some of us have experienced what a pre-9-11 world felt like and what travel felt like 
uh, pre-9-11. And just about all of us have experienced and are still experiencing dramatic shifts of what it means for us as a, as a globe, as a world, to move through a global pandemic. Right? Like we're still, some of us are, are getting some twitches now, some PTSD is coming up from having to deal with a global pandemic. COVID-19 really did a number on us, didn't it? Like, boy, I remember so many things, but I'm so glad that it's in the rearview mirror and it's just something we have to sort of manage and, and deal with, learn to, to live with. But, but of course, COVID-19 wasn't the first pandemic and it sure is not going to be the last, right? There were about uh, 5 million dead among the Antonine Plague in the second century. The plague of Justinian took about 30 to 50 million in the 6th century. There was a Japanese smallpox epidemic in the 8th century that claimed about 1 million lives. The greatest of them all, the, the bubonic plague, right? The Black Death took uh, an estimated between 75 to 200 million people in the 14th century. In Europe alone, it wiped out 30 to 40% of the population. There was a smallpox pandemic in the 16th century that took about 56 million people. On and on. You have the Spanish flu and the Russian flu, the Asian flu in the 1950s, the Hong Kong flu in the 60s and early 70s that took about 2 million people. SARS, MERS, Ebola, swine took somewhere around 2 million in our very recent history. And of course, our own very beloved COVID-19, which uh, uh, apparently has taken about 7 million people to date. It's wild to think that something, like a germ, right? And if you, if you take, I, I mentioned this last, last time uh, that I spoke about this, but if you took every single COVID-19 particle that e- existed about a year ago, I'm not sure what it is now, every single particle of COVID-19, you can probably fit it in a 375 mil can of Coke. Think about that. Think about the way the world was absolutely disrupted. You know, like, like, Everything was disrupted by a can of Coke. Like, you think about that. That's crazy. Something so small and so microscopic as a germ has disrupted our world in ways still to be seen. Something as small and as seemingly insignificant as a germ, as a virus, can turn the world upside down. And this is not very different to the reality that I want to highlight this morning, the reality that in a room about this size, that, that, that just a, a group of, of followers of Jesus, no larger than what could fit in this size, have turned the world upside down. They became an unstoppable, unstoppable force with and for the gospel. And it starts right here in the book of Acts. Come back with me to verse 1. In the, book, in the first book of Theophilus, he's speaking about the gospel of Luke. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's difficult for us to enter in, to truly enter in to the experience of these first followers of Jesus. You have to remember that at this point, they'd only spent about 40 days, about a month and a half or so with the risen Messiah. 
a physical, bodily resurrection of the man who had been brutally murdered and tortured. They, they weren't prepared for this. I'm sure that they were still shocked in their systems. Try to picture this, that the person you've placed all your hope in, that the person you've, you, like all your eggs are in the Jesus basket, and it was all taken away. He was dead, gone, murdered. The hope of national liberation was gone. The desire to see God's rule and reign in Jerusalem once again through a righteous king was finished for them. The mission with Jesus in the tomb was effectively over. Death had killed the mission. The final enemy had proven stronger than the author of life. And what they find out on Sunday morning is that death had been swallowed up in victory, that the Messiah was in fact alive, that not even death could stop what God was accomplishing in and through Jesus the Christ. And not without setbacks, we see the word spreading and the disciples multiplying in the book of Acts. In fact, um, I, I, don't want you, I don't want this to startle you, okay? But chapter verses, chapters and verses were added about a thousand years after Scripture was written. But by the way, like the, uh, uh, the, the authors of Scripture did not include chapters and verses. That was included well after, about 900 years after, in order for, to help us navigate it. But in the book of Acts, there are something like chapter headings. And every single time you find uh, the gospel going forward or, or uh, uh, disciples multiplying, it's something like an ancient version of chapter headings. So in Acts chapter 2, 41, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then the, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. Acts 9 so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily over and over again throughout the book of Acts. You have this force of the word going out, of disciples being multiplied. The church continued to grow. The gospel continued to be preached in the face of opposition. In fact, in fact, listen, we see opposition and persecution as an interruption. But in fact, it was the very vehicle through which God used to get his message out. It was through, it was in the context of persecution that the church expanded as well. It was because of persecution, in fact, that they left the city. And from a band of 70 or so disciples, there are approximately 2.4 billion people today. Like billions, we think it's easy for us to understand the, the, the number billion. Uh, but it's not easy to understand. Like it's not close to a million, right? Uh, from, from 70 or so disciples 2.4 billion people around the world who've pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And if there were a face of Christianity today, if, if, if like a median, it would be a poor, uneducated, sub-Saharan African woman. That would be, that's the face of the Christian in today's world. But the question is how? How is it that the mission of God, his desire to see the world renewed, and this is so important. I mean, this is, 
This is something, I, I think I mention it every single sermon because I want you to be excited about this. It's so important that God does not call us to leave the earth. He will renew the earth. I was listening to a song yesterday. I was speaking to James about this in the office. And the song was like, uh, I'm not going to say who it was, uh, but, but the song was singing about how we're, we're made for more than the earth. I'm like, no, we're not. We're not. We're like, we're, the, earth, the earth isn't too small for us. We're made of earth. We're made for the earth. Yes, it's broken, but one day God will renew the earth and we will be here. Our, our job isn't to escape. Like, like becoming a Christian isn't a get out of hell free card. It isn't an ejection from the earth. God will renew this world. That's God's mission, to renew the world. And he, he starts it with us. And despite opposition, despite persecution, despite hardship, how is it that when it was incredibly disadvantageous to become a Christian, how is it that in the first few centuries of the church that God's mission continued to march along? For John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days from now. Simply put, and not to be overly simplistic and not to deny political, social, and geographic realities, but when we get to the bottom of things, the reason why the mission of God is unstoppable is because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus himself, that he comes not only to live with us, but to live within us. And because this is the reality that we can do nothing, we can do nothing apart from his empowering grace. And Jesus orders them to do nothing, to sit and wait for power, which is, to me, seems incredibly counterintuitive. Just imagine yourself. I mean, you are, you are weeping, you are depressed, your Lord is dead, he is embalmed, right? Like he's covered in spices and the stone is rolled away and I cannot wait already. I already got an angle on that, I can't wait for Easter, right? But I'm not gonna give it away now. You're gonna have to come back. He's alive. Like he who was once dead is alive. I don't wanna wait at all. I don't wanna wait a moment to get this message out. And Jesus orders them to do nothing. I mean, death has been defeated. The devil has been conquered. Why do we have to wait? They're commanded to wait because to engage in the work of God, in the mission of God without the spirit of God is going to uh, uh, lead them to generate a whole lot of activity with not a lot of output. The ROI is going to be very low. The truth of the gospel must move from an external reality to an internal motivation for them. They have to be empowered because to, to do anything for God apart from the, God, from the from empowering presence of God is only going to lead to burnout and to exhaustion and to fatigue and frustration and this perpetual feeling that we're spinning our wheels in the mud. We're going to be doing a lot but getting nowhere. And he gives us his spirit and he assures us he assures us that the mission won't fail. Like, like I, don't know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to say this. He assures you that when you come to him and, and when we are in Christ, that we're on the winning team. Like, that's a promise. Like, what, what investment would you not, like, invest in if you know? Like, 
if you were to take like a time machine back to 2003, right? Or whenever, uh, 2013, whenever Bitcoin came out, right? And you knew, you knew what, like the bubble, you knew it was going to bubble. You knew that you would become filthy rich. How stupid would I be to not invest in that? And the, the idea that, listen, Jesus says, I assure you, my mission will not fail. It may not go how you think. It definitely will not mean that you're spared from difficulties. Quote, unquote, winning in the kingdom of God looks very different from our cultural expectations of winning. Take the book of Hebrews, for example. It's actually a sermon, uh, and I encourage you to read it. Highly recommend it. It takes about 45 minutes to read from cover to cover. It's a sermon, but whenever I get to chapter 11, it blows me away because this chapter is talking about faith this, right? Faith that, the hall of faith, it's called. Don't ever use that in my presence, right? The hall of faith. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Sarah conceived. She was 90 years old. By faith, Moses led the people across the sea. And then in verse 32, this happens. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. To t- I mean, I don't know if people were starting to yawn during the sermon, like people were falling asleep. But what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It turns real quick, right? Because we can sign up. It's so easy to sign up to the first half. Conquer kingdoms? I'm there. Stop the mouths of lions? I'm there, right? Like, I, I, we, we love that. What? Escape the edge of the sword? Sign me up. But you can keep being sown in half. Right? You can keep, like, that, that's for the Christians who don't have enough faith. You can keep that. You, you, you can keep being destitute and afflicted and mistreated. I'll take the first half, but not the second. And this is the point. If we're going to partner with God in this generation to see his name go out, then we must be prepared to live within a reality that is not orchestrated by our plans. We must live with a radical abandonment to the will, the plan, and the purposes of God, come what may. The point being this, that regardless of the particular circumstances that we may find ourselves in, our government in, our world in, in 10, 15, 20 years, we don't know. Regardless how hard or how difficult or how easy it may be, the mission of God is absolutely unstoppable. So much so that Matthew 16, Jesus will say that not even the gates of hell will prevail over the church. Not even all of hell 
Like when we think of everything that is evil and that is fallen and that is anti-God, everything, not even that can prevail over the church. And this is what we need to understand, that oftentimes we think that the church is on the defensive end of the culture, of, of, of whatever, of the fight. But when was the last time you saw William Wallace go onto the battlefield with a gate? A gate is not an offensive weapon. It is a defensive weapon. And so it's the church that is on the offensive, infiltrating places of darkness with the gospel. It's the church that enters into enemy territory, bearing witness in word and in deed to the gracious rule and reign of King Jesus. And there is nothing in this world, there is no ism in this world, there is no philosophy in this world. There is no government in this world. There is nothing in this world that will stop the mission of God. It was unsto- absolutely unstoppable. And it was unstoppable, be- unstoppable because the gospel took root in the lives of the Christians. It, it, it became unstoppable because the gospel took root deeply in the lives of Christians and the world took note. It's, it's often thought, and it's, it, this is sort of in the secular story of the church in the West, it's often thought that the church became what it was. It became the powerhouse that it became because Constantine in the fourth century decided to become a Christian. Now that's that's the, the common idea that we have, that the church became the church because Constantine adopted a, a, a Christian faith and he uh, uh, legislated it across the empire. And this couldn't be further from the truth. Listen, Constantine did not make Christianity what it was. Constantine saw that it was politically expedient for him to adopt the faith because it was already exploding. Now, I'm not commenting on the genuineness of his faith or, or, or the result of all that at this point, but I'm just pointing out that the relationship is often front to back. In this book, The Rise of Christianity, which is subtitled, how the, this is a this is wild. How the obscure, margin, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. Social scientist Rodney Stark, who, by the way, is not a Christian, he outlines some of the reasons why Christianity grew so rapidly in the first four centuries. Among them are, are three that I want to mention. The first one is this. The role and the status of women in the early church. The Christian's ability to suffer well. And the Christian sex ethic. He notes that Christianity offered women the respect and status that common pagan women outside of a very, very few minority in the center of uh, Rome uh, could never hope or dream of. And today, Christianity is often touted as uh, um, sort of anti-woman or or oppressive to women. But it was Christianity that corrected the imbalance of the sexes. Stark notes this. He says, to the extent that women held significant roles within the church, they enjoyed greater power and status than did pagan women. Women. Christianity was absolutely liberating for women, not an oppressive force. Women flocked to Jesus and the church because Christianity protected women. Listen, during a time where, where it, was, it was said that, that the male, the man, the head of the household could sleep with whomever he wanted, his, his, his servants, anyone else, prostitutes at the pagan temple, he could have done whatever. And the wife had no recourse to say or do anything about it. Christianity comes along and says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You are to be faithful to your wife. In a time where it was, it was noted that men owned their wives' bodies, Paul says, no, 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 hold on. That's partly true. There's this, there's this obligation there, but listen, yes, even as the man owns the wife, the wife owns them. The wife owns the man. 
Like there's this mutual beneficial relationship between a man and his wife that was absolutely unheard of. It liberated women and it offered them the protection that pagan culture could never. But also, the Christian's ability to suffer well. At the height of the great epidemic in around 260 AD, there were droves of people leaving the city to save themselves, but the Christians stayed. The Christians stayed. When, when there was plague after plague, the Christians stayed. In this letter by a bishop called Dionysus, he writes this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the very onset of the disease, they pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of this fatal disease. See, because the gospel took root in the hearts and lives of the early Christians, they were able to suffer well. They were able to suffer even sacrificially, even to their own death. And this was highly attractive because a force, listen, a force that allows you to dominate and kill others will be attractive to few. It, it will be, right? There, there are people who are attracted, who are thirsty for that kind of power. But a force, a belief that can make you suffer well, even unto death, is a force that will take the world by storm. And why wouldn't Christians respond like this? When, when their own Lord, their own God, was one who suffered with them and for them. So, women were liberated and protected. Christians were able to suffer well. And finally, the Christian sex ethic. In a world where you'd give your body to practically anybody, the Christians came along and began to live in a radically different way. I think it was Tim Keller who said, whereas pagans gave their bodies to practically anybody and gave their money to practically nobody, the Christians gave their bodies to practically nobody and gave their money to practically anybody. Right? And this is the great reversal uh, that was incredibly attractive. And this wasn't just about an outward morality. They were captured by a new vision of what it means to be human in the world. Jesus the Christ set the example, gave the church's spirit so that they would able, be able to embody the gracious rule and reign of Jesus. Christians, rather than suffer well for the sake of others, I, I want to say rather, Christians, rather than suffer well for the sake of others, we often will throw people under the bus and run just as quickly the other way. Rather than hold to a high sex ethic and give our money away generously, we often withhold our earthly riches. But this is not the way the early church grew. The early church, where the gospel took a deep root in people's lives, they didn't count their lives as too precious, and this made them absolutely unstoppable. But not only is the mission of God unstoppable, it is surprisingly unhurried. Come back with me to the text, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so right on the heels of Jesus telling them to wait 
for the empowering presence of the Spirit, their impatience rears its ugly head. They want to know what his plan is now, right? Okay, so you've suffered, you were betrayed, you were tortured, you've come back to life, right? Uh, You spent 40 days with us now. What's the plan? Will you now restore the earthly kingdom of God through and with Israel? The idea that the kingdom of God will come in full force now. They wanted God's kingdom on earth now, and they wanted it to happen right then and there. And it's a beautiful vision, by the way. I don't, I don't want to pile on them too, too much. It's a beautiful vision. In their minds, they had this vision that Isaiah spoke about 700 years prior. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What a, what a beautiful picture. Right, That AKs, weapons that take life and put it into the ground, are transformed into tools that bring life from the ground. This is a beautiful desire for the disciples to have. And we should yearn for this reality when war ceases. The disciples would have already gotten the sense that, man, death has been defeated. We need to see the fullness of this now. But they continue to feel to grasp that the mission of God is not only unstoppable, but it is unhurried. The disciples here were marked by impatience, by hurry. But the mission will not be accomplished not only in his way, but in his timing. The mission is marked by both a real urgency and a deep patience. Today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today, and if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, today is the day of salvation. In fact, in the first few hundred years, the patience was the very thing that marked the early church, but it was this, it's this patient urgency. We, we need to grasp this idea that we are not in control, that God's not in a rush, but the mission will move on. And yet there are things to do. There are sermons to preach, bodies to heal, the poor to feed, naked to clothe, churches to be planted, networks to be started, the gospel to be preached, but with the understanding that God has got everything under control. How do we hold those two things together? How do, we, how, do we, how do we partner with God for the renewal of all things in such a way that it doesn't depend on me? And they ask Jesus, now, Lord, now? And Jesus, like the G that he is, he goes, chill out, it's not for you to know. Just wait, you're gonna receive power and you will be witnesses for me. Focus on that. Jesus is calling them to the mission of God, but in such a way that doesn't depend on their natural abilities or their timing. This is God's mission first and foremost, and we're called to engage in it like the early church did with patience. The early church had no missions agencies, right, at all. They, uh, there were no conferences on how to share the gospel with your friends. There were no books written or courses about how to do evangelism. Now, I'm not against those things at all. What I'm saying is that maybe I wonder, I wonder, that due to a lack of Holy Ghost power that we experience in our churches today, a lack of enjoying Jesus, we create other avenues as a way of asking the same impatient question. Will you now restore the kingdom, Lord? We often lack the patience necessary to sustain the urgency of the gospel. 
God is simply not in a rush. Alan Crider, in his wonderful book, he says, The Christians believed that God is patient and that Jesus visibly embodied patience. And they concluded that they, trusting in God, should be patient, not controlling events. That is so countercultural. I'm not controlling events, not anxious or in a hurry, and never using force to achieve their ends. Never. Jesus was non-coercive. We, much like the disciples, want to control the coming of the kingdom, but Jesus reminds them and us that it's not up to us. Just be prepared to receive power and be my witnesses. In other words, there's a lot for you to do. If you're a Christian here and you've signed up to Team Jesus, there's a lot for you to do, period. There's a lot for us to do, but there's nothing for you to prove. There's nothing for you to prove here, but there's a a, a hell of a lot to do. A lot of nations without the gospel that need it proclaimed to them in word and deed, and yet there's no rush. If we're going to join God in what he's doing in the world, we would be wise to understand that the mission of God is both unhurried and unstoppable, but the cultivation of patience will be key. Now, I want to give us a a few points as, as we finish up. Patience is rooted in God's character. God, listen, you may have been in church for a long time, all your life maybe, but I want you to understand this. God is patient. He's working unstoppably across centuries and millennia, not just weeks and years. And we we think about, listen, we're all NPCs, right? We're non-playing characters almost in in God's game, right? Anthony calls me an NPC all the time, right? I'm just, I'm a side character, right? But we all, the way we live our lives, and that's just what we, like, like we're living from point of view, like our point, that's fine. We understand, I get it, how each and every one of us thinks that we're the main character in our story, but we're not. You're, you're at best a side character in God's story. And he loves you and he sees you. But God here, is, he's patient. He's not just working in your lifetime. He's working across centuries and millennia. God is patient. Patience is revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus' life and teaching demonstrate what patience means and calls those who follow him to a patient lifestyle that participates in God's mission. Patience means we release control. I know there's some of us here, not everyone's like this, but I know at least there's a few of us here who are control freaks. People who live a patient lifestyle trust God and do not try to manipulate outcomes. They live with risk and refuse to coerce. Patience sounds silly to say, but it's not in a hurry. We live at a pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. Patience is unconventional. It requires, it reconfigures behavior according to Jesus' teaching, especially around money and sex and power. Patience is not violent. It accepts injury. Imagine accepting injury for the gospel's sake without retaliating in kind because violence is not God's calling for them and can't bring fundamental change. Patience offers everyone religious freedom, by the way. We don't coerce people into following Jesus. And patience ultimately is hopeful. It entrusts the future fully and confidently to God. Imagine how your life would change today, today, if we released control of our lives. It doesn't mean you don't make decisions. In fact, it it, it heightens your decisions. And this is what we need to understand. It's not either or, it's both and. But imagine what kind of people we would be if we released control and entrusted the future fully 
to God. It's a beautiful picture because this is, this is God's, God's work. It's worked out across centuries and millennia, and he's calling us to join it now. It was Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, who said that it was the strange patience of Christians that caused pagans to become believers. And as we cultivate a hopeful, patient urgency in this community, my, my, my prayer for you, my prayer for us, is that we would, we would look to this vision in Revelation 7, because this is where we're all going. If, 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 listen, if, if there is a, if there is a, a modicum, an iota of any kind of racial superiority in the church, you will not like heaven. You will hate it there. Absolutely hate it there. Because where we're going is this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the mission of God to renew and reconcile all things to himself is utterly, completely, unrevocably, unstoppable. This is where the world is heading. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee. We either practice it now or we will one day see him and, 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 and have no recourse. We, I mean, we have no idea of, of what we so often, particularly, maybe if you're not walking with Jesus, you want to say, man, if I would just see Jesus, you don't want to see Jesus. He's ferocious, but he's safe. And one day, every single knee will bow. This is where the world is headed, towards wholeness, towards shalom. This is the road that God has chosen to travel, and it's paved with patience. We plant, yes, but we do so in a non-anxious way because we understand that it's God who brings the growth. We, we tell, yes, we show the effects of the gospel in our lives, yes, but we do so in a non-coercive way because we understand that it's a spirit that brings new birth. The mission of God is both unstoppable and unhurried. And if we're going to go to the ends of the earth, if we're going to go to those other 7,000 people groups who have no scripture and no indigenous church in their language or in their community, let me remind you of where this all comes from. That mission, if we're going to do anything, it must come out of an explosion of joy. We have to enjoy Jesus, right? Again, I say this all the time. No one teaches you how to share what you enjoy. No one. Like, no one has to tell you, you know that movie or restaurant or place you visited? Let me share, let me, let me teach you how to share that with your friends. No one. Because sharing is the combination of joy. Leslie Newbigin, he says this, he says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and the crucified Jesus is alive right now, today, is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout of, of a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. 
an explosion of joy because we naturally share what we enjoy. When we are ex- just as excited as those saints in the book of Revelation who cry out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we rejoice in the reality that Jesus has saved us from Satan and from sin and from death and from hell. When we wake up to the beautiful new reality of living life in the kingdom with our King Jesus, when we enjoy God more than we look forward to a pain-free existence, when, we, when our joy is found in simply being with God rather than just doing things for God, when the joy of our salvation is restored in our hearts, our minds, and our imaginations, do you think that you'll need five hot tips on how to share Jesus with your friends? The very first missionary in the gospel is this nameless woman, the woman at the well. She encounters Jesus, and what happens? She runs back to her enemies at that, the people who were ridiculing her, the people who were oppressing her, and she goes to them and she says, come and see a man who told me everything about my life. We will become a missional church. We will live out of our missionary identity as beloved sons and daughters of Jesus when we enjoy Jesus. My prayer and my hope, I'm going to invite the band up, and I got to rest. My prayer and my hope is that we would be fueled by this vision, by this sure hope that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Messiah Jesus is Lord and King. And my prayer, my hope, all I want for you is that we would pursue joy, that we would pursue patience, that we would pursue the urgency of the gospel, that that we would be fueled by a vision of knowing that there will be people in our lives who we love who will go into eternity not knowing him as Father. And that should do something to us. It should really do something to us. May we be a church that bears witness to the gracious rule and reign of God. May we we be a church that allows the gospel to fuel the gospel, not law, the gospel, to fuel our obedience to King Jesus as we do whatever it takes to bring the wayward home, remembering that the mission of God is both unstoppable We can't lose, but it is absolutely and surprisingly unhurried. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We we, we thank you for everything, Lord, that you've done for us. Not one of us is sitting here, standing here, apart from your second by second sustaining the very breath in our lungs is yours and so may we return it back to you now with praise may we sing of your goodness may we share of your grace may you give us everything that we need in this moment lord to encounter you now We ask that you would go before us, that even as our words go up, may they be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and may you receive them, Lord, 
as a, as a, as a fragrant offering to you. May you hold our pain and our tears knowing that one day we will see you face to face and we will, you will wipe away every tear, every disappointment, every hurt. And by faith, we want to say, it will be, as we look back on our lives, it will be a light and a momentary affliction that was preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. One of the things that we do